Lord, would there be any here today that as yet can't testify to you lifting them out of their sin into your family? May this be the time in their lives when they understand your great love, your amazing grace, your efficacious blood, Lord Jesus, and the hope of heaven and forgiveness. Lord, for the rest of us who come to assemble today knowing we are saved, may we never forget from whence you have lifted us, and may we never regress to any of those places. And now, Lord, I ask you to hide me behind the cross, to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the redeemed person's life. To the end, Lord, that we would obey you with unity, obey you with imitation of Jesus, both personally and collectively. And we ask this in Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior's name, and God's people said, amen. We are working our way through the epistle to the Romans. We're getting near to the end of the epistle. And today we come into chapter 15. And the first 13 verses, to be specific, are our attention for this morning. What these verses are going to call us to is the imitation of Christ. These verses are going to give us ways, three ways, that we can and should imitate Jesus Christ. And then four positive, happy outcomes for doing so. It's careful to make a distinguishing fact between the imitation of Christ and the imitation of each other. We are nowhere in Scripture told to imitate each other, but rather to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. For if I was to imitate you, I might be doing the things that God hasn't called me to do. Because in Ephesians 2.10 it says, for we are his workmanship, the Greek is poema, from which we get the English word poem, we each are poems. For we are his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So your good works probably don't look like the good works God has for me. So I am not to imitate any of you. You are not to imitate me, but rather all of us are to imitate Christ. Now, the passage, as I've stated, has three ways that we imitate Christ. It gives us three concrete ways that we can choose to imitate our Savior. And the first way is by not pleasing yourself. We are to imitate Christ by not pleasing ourselves. Verses 1 to 3, Romans chapter 15. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let, us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. So clearly the first way this passage calls us to imitate the Lord Jesus is by choosing not to please ourselves. We talked about strong believers in the previous chapter and weak believers. I hope you remember that strong believers are believers who have a knowledge of God's word such that they have Bible-based convictions on certain issues. Weaker believers are truly saved, but they as yet have not come to understand the Bible well enough to have a biblical conviction about a matter, and so they are 
floundering at sometimes with their opinions. I've told you last time that I might not cross the street for my opinions, KFC versus Wendy's, but I would die for my convictions. What I believe the Bible teaches, I would die for that. Some of us here this morning are weaker believers. God loves us. We love you. You haven't yet developed convictions. We encourage you to study the word, to come to your own convictions. Others of us are stronger believers. We have come to Bible-based convictions. We aren't to look down on the weaker brother. We aren't to look past the weaker sister. We are to have deference to their own spiritual growth and stability. And so in this new chapter 15, it's calling us to imitate Jesus Christ, and it's calling us to do that in the first place by um, not pleasing ourselves. That is a choice, not pleasing ourselves. Verse 1, again, now we who are strong with convictions ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, those people with only opinions, and not just please ourselves. And not just please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, a Bible word for upbuilding. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. So I suggested in a sermon past that the key verse of chapter 14 was verse 19, which reads, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Whether you're a weak or a strong Christian, you are commanded, and I am too, to pursue, to chase after the things that make for peace between believers, the things that make for mutual upbuilding in our walk with Jesus Christ. We said it was like being a good parent. Good parents don't look out for their own rights or privileges or things that they want to do. They look out for their young children. They give deference to their younger children. That's what a good parent does. And so we have to be mindful of our neighbor. Verse 2, let us, each of us, please his neighbor for his good. We are to be mindful of our neighbors in this assembly, the weaker ones and the stronger ones. There was a boy who messed up the song. When all my neighbors and trials are o'er, guess what? We're not done with our neighbors on earth. We all have neighbors. Some are easy to like. Some are not so easy to like. We see eye to eye on opinion matters with some of them. We don't see eye to eye on opinion matters with others of them. But we are to look past our own pleasure, the things that we like, the things that we prefer, and we are to be mindful of the believer in this assembly who is weaker than us in the faith, has yet to come to biblical convictions, we are to be like loving parents to be mindful for that person. That's what I see in verse 2 of chapter 15. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. We are to be like good parents. Now, praise the Lord, the text gives us the supreme and perfect illustration of someone who didn't please himself, and of course, it was the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ consistently in his earthly ministry did not please himself. He was silent before Pontius Pilate. He didn't say, I object. All the trials that brought me before you were illegal by Jewish law. He didn't say a word. He didn't please himself. He was silent before Pontius Pilate. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, not my will, but thy will be done. On the cross, as he bled in agony and and shame, He could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him from the cross, but he didn't. 
to fulfill his sin payment mission to earth. If anybody gives us an example of not pleasing themselves, it's Jesus. And we should choose not to please ourselves because Jesus chose not to please himself. You know, for us, joy is spelt Jesus, others, yourself. For us as followers of Jesus, joy is spelt Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. That's joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. For the Lord Jesus, joy for him was his father first, others second, and himself last. And so when we imitate Jesus... By not pleasing ourselves, we are humble. The proud and arrogant follower of Jesus Christ is the follower of Jesus Christ who, in disobedience, doesn't imitate Jesus' refusal to please himself. The proud individual in any assembly is the one who wants his or her own way, wants to please him or herself. Don't be that person. There is a wonderful result that we can expect if we will imitate Christ by not pleasing ourselves. And according to verse 4, if you look at the text, it's hope. We can expect hope if we imitate Jesus by not pleasing ourselves. We can expect hope. Verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We will have hope. You want hope? Then imitate Jesus and don't please yourself. That's how you get, one way you get hope. Verse 4 is saying that the original readers of the book of Romans had all the Old Testament scriptures, and those Old Testament scriptures were given by God to them to instruct them, and when they believed and learned what those scriptures taught in the Old Testament, then those believers could persevere in the present time, and they could be encouraged in the present time, and then having been encouraged, they could have hope, even though Rome was holding them slaves. They could have hope. They could have hope, and so can we. Put another way to say this is that scriptural instruction plus perseverance plus encouragement equals hope. Want to have hope? Be instructed by the Bible in your own reading of daily. Persevere in what it tells you to be and do. Have encouragement that the Spirit of God will help you to do it, and then you will have hope, no matter what you face at the job tomorrow. No matter how you look at your bank account balance. No matter how you see your children far or near. That's how you get hope. There's a difference, a big difference between wishing and hoping. Wishing does not equal hoping. Hoping does not equal wishing. Wishing is a far inferior thing to hoping. Wishing is way not as good as hoping. Listen to Eugene Peterson on this. It is essential to distinguish between hoping and wishing. They are not the same thing. Wishing is something all of us do. It projects what we want or think we need into the future. Just because we wish for something good or holy, we think it qualifies as hope. It does not. Wishing extends our egos into the future. Hope desires what God is going to do, and we don't yet know what that is. Let me read that again. 
Wishing extends our egos into the future. Hope desires what God is going to do, and we don't yet know what that is. I go on with the quote. Wishing grows out of our egos. Hope grows out of our faith. Hope is oriented toward what God is doing. Wishing is toward what we are doing. Wishing has to do with what I want in things or people or God. Hope has to do with what God wants in the world of things and people and beyond me. Peterson goes on in the quote, wishing is our will projected into the future and hope is God's will coming out of the future to us. Picture in your mind wishing is a line that comes out of me with an arrow to the future. Hoping is a line that comes out of God from the future with an arrow pointing back to me. See the difference? Let me say it again. Peterson says, picture in your mind wishing is a line that comes out of me with an arrow pointing into the future. Hoping is a line that comes out of God from the future with an arrow pointing back to me. Quote goes on. Hope means being surprised because we don't know what is best for us or how our lives are going to be completed. To cultivate, cultivate hope is to suppress wishing, I say again. To cultivate hope is to suppress wishing. To refuse to fantasize about what we want, but to live in anticipation of what God is going to do next. Wishing is not nearly hoping. You realize that over on Paradise Island in the casino at Atlantis, that some adults are wearing diapers under their clothing so they won't leave the slot machine because they're wishing to hit the jackpot? That's the truth. Some people who are addicted to gambling in that casino are wearing depends to sit at a slot machine wishing for the jackpot. Do you realize the people who are addicted to trying to get money they haven't earned and have jitters over peeling back their lottery tickets at the convenience stores in Nassau are merely wishing for wealth they haven't worked to earn? Do you realize that wishing is vastly inferior to hoping? That people who this week will be spending the money that they should spend on food and rent and clothing on island luck are wishing they're not hoping? Wishing is vastly inferior to hoping. And we imitate Jesus, church, by not pleasing ourselves. And when we do so, we'll be hoping we won't be wishing. Verses three and four, please. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. Verse four, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, and through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the first thing that this passage calls us to do when it calls us to imitate Jesus Christ is to not please ourselves. The second way that we are to imitate Christ in this passage is to be experiencing unity with other believers as you glorify God the Father together. You will be imitating Jesus 
as you experience unity with other brothers and sisters in this assembly, and together you are glorifying God the Father. Verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now being of the same mind with one another is really living Christian unity. When you're of the same mind with a brother or sister in this church, you are really living out Christian unity. Unity in the church, I must point out this Communion Sunday, that unity in this local assembly and in the church as a whole cost the Godhead everything. It cost the Father the fellowship of his son for three hours in darkness in Palestine. It cost the son his reputation, the use of his divine attributes while on earth, his life, his blood. It cost Jesus everything. It cost the Holy Spirit Everything that Christ would come, pay for our sins, make us right with God, give us a place in God's family. He'd come and descend and live inside the blood-bought child of God to give us the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. This whole deal of unity in an assembly cost the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit everything. And because it did, we as born-again Christians have an obligation, a responsibility to persevere in that unity, to promote that unity, to do whatever it takes to establish and confirm that unity, to showcase that unity to all the people who go by on Collins Avenue have never set foot in this building yet. Now, according to verses 5 and 6, graciously, God tells us that there will be six symptoms of an assembly that's unified. There'll be six symptoms Good symptoms of believers that are getting along together in unity. You ready? Six symptoms. We want these things. Symptom one is endurance. Being unified with other Christians is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Second symptom of being unified and having unity with other believers is encouragement. Being unified requires cheering each other on. I'm getting all these things from verses 5 and 6. The third symptom of unity is a whole spirit of unity, a tone of unity. When we greet each other on Sunday mornings and we're enjoying that and just shaking hands and hugging and talking briefly, it's a picture of a spirit of unity. Doesn't matter how much you make, doesn't matter what your address is, doesn't matter what you drive, doesn't mean your age, doesn't mean, mean your gender, it means unity. A spirit of unity is a big part of Christian unity, having the same mind. Symptom four of having unity is being of one heart, not just one mind, but being one in heart, being in one accord, sharing a common passion for the gospel, sharing a common passion for the scriptures, sharing a common passion for evangelism, sharing a common passion for world missions, being one in heart. Symptom five of being in unity with each other, being one in speech, one voice. Verses five and six, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Jesus Christ, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One tongue between all of us. How, what do I mean by that? You know how draft workhorses 
pull heavy loads on trailers and the trailer has a tongue. There is one tongue for the trailer that a team of horses pulls, one tongue. And then the horses in harness, it's a baby, amen. The horses in harness pull together, pulling one tongue attached to one trailer, pulling one load. Beth and I, in the will of the Lord, if God gives life, will celebrate our 33rd wedding anniversary in August. And before we ever got married, we made a promise to each other and to God that we would never talk negatively about each other behind the other's back. Never. Never have. Beth has never spoken negatively about me. Not that I don't have faults. I do. But she's never run me down with anyone else behind my back. And by God's grace, I have never run Beth down with my mouth behind her back. You are going to get married someday. You're single. You want to look for a Christian, growing Christian, who will make that same commitment to you that between us, there'll be one tongue. How we parent will be one tongue. How we view money will be one tongue. How we spend our free time will be one tongue. How we look at ministry in a church will be one tongue. One voice. Verse 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one accord, according to Jesus Christ, that with one accord you may be one voice. There is no place for gossip in our church. There is no place for uh, slander. There is no place for backbiting. There is no place for backstabbing. No place. One voice between us. That's what it means, among other things, to have unity as a body of believers. Now, verse 5, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one another you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we will imitate Christ, by not pleasing ourselves. If, secondly, we will imitate Christ by experiencing true unity with other believers as we together glorify God the Father. If we will do those things, these wonderful symptoms will happen. Endurance, encouragement, unity of spirit, being of one heart, being of one speech, glorifying God the Father, making God the Father to look as great as he truly is. Who wouldn't want that? How do we do those things? How do we live this way? There is one method the text gives us for having these happy symptoms of unity, and it's following Christ. Our new church model since I've become your pastor is loving and following Jesus and telling others about him. That's what we're about, loving and following Jesus and telling others about him. That's what Calvary Bible Church is to be about, loving and following Jesus and telling others about him. Part of that mission statement, that simple little mission statement, is following Jesus. That's how we're going to live in unity with each other, by following Jesus individually. Because if we're all following Jesus as individuals, he's going to lead all of us as a congregation in unity. This piano is a lovely piano. We have so many gifted pianists that can play it so beautifully. If we cleared all the pews in this sanctuary, all the pews are gone, and we put instruments like this, like a piano, all pianos, all through this area, do you know how they would come to be in tune with each other? We would strike a tuning fork on one note, 
and tune all of the individual pianos to the tuning fork. Because if all the individual pianos are tuned to the same tuning fork, then they will be in tune with each other. Jesus Christ is the tuning fork. We all are to follow him. Because if we'll all follow him, we will be in concert with each other. We will be in harmony with each other. We will be in unity with each other. And Jesus said in John 13, that's how the outsider will know that we're legitimate followers of his if we love one another. So how are we to imitate Jesus? By not pleasing ourselves. Christ is the perfect example. Secondly, by living in such a way that we um, experience this unity with each other to God's glory. The third and final way in the passage that we are to imitate Christ is by accepting one another. Verses 7 to 12. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's a way of saying the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to conform the promise, confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. I will sing to thy name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, that's Messiah, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. You see, in the church at Rome that received this letter first, there were saved Jews and there were saved Gentiles. And the Jews in the church of Rome had a bit of a prejudice problem. They looked at some of their brothers and sisters in Christ at the church of Rome who were not Jewish in their heritage, and they looked down their nose at them as seeing them as somehow second-class followers of Jesus, as Johnny-come-lately converts, not quite on the same par as the converted Jew. Their call, which is God's call to you and me today, in the imitation of Christ, is to accept everyone that Jesus accepts. One day, we're told in Revelation that all the people groups of the world, of history, will be represented around the throne of Christ, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Every single people group will have converts representing that people group at that future scene in heaven. I'm not talking about simply nationalities, geopolitical countries. I'm talking about people groups, language groups, cultural groups, all people groups will have converted believers in Jesus Christ at that future time of worship. So shame on us. Shame on us if we look down our nose at somebody who comes into this assembly and says, I just trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior, and they're not like us for any particular reason, and we don't quite know if they're saved. Really? Really? You? Text says, 
you are looking back down your nose at someone that Jesus Christ has saved and accepted, and you're not going to accept them because Christ has accepted you with all your idiosyncrasies and awkwardness and rebelliousness and sinfulness. You're not going to accept a person who professes Christ as Savior and Lord as if you're above them? Wrong. And so verse 7 says, therefore, or wherefore, looking back to verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, since we are to imitate Christ by not pleasing ourselves and by experiencing unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ to the glory of God the Father, therefore, we are to accept each other. Who is the supreme example and illustration of acceptance? Once again, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us us to the glory of God. Christ accepted both the Jewish believer in him and the Gentile believer in him. He accepted them equally. The ground was level at the foot of his cross, and it still is. The Jewish converts who viewed those Gentile converts as second class and Johnny-come-latelys and interlopers on God's covenants to Israel were wrong. Sinfully wrong. Christ's finished work on the cross, I say it again, levels the ground at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. And whosoever will may come to Jesus in faith. Now, if we imitate the Lord Jesus and we accept each other, the text gives us some very happy results when we do that. The result, number one, is found in the second part of verse 7, and it's praise goes to God. You want praise to go to God from this assembly? Then accept all that are sent to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise goes to God. Verse 7b. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us, watch it, to the glory of God. When you accept someone that's different than you, someone that's a Christian that's hard to like, someone who has idiosyncrasies that bug you, who's a brother or sister in Christ, when you choose to accept that person, you bring honor and glory to Christ. That's the first result of accepting one another. That's the first wonderful result. Praise goes to God. Second result, if we will accept one another by imitating Christ, by accepting one another, the happy result number two is God's promises to the Jews are confirmed. When we accept one another in this assembly, be we Jew or Gentile converts, when we do that, we confirm God's promises that were previously made to the Jews. How does that work? Verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jew, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The covenants made with Abraham, Moses, David, when we accept each other in the family of God, we confirm the covenantal promises that God historically made to the Jews. Amazing. If you hold your place in Romans and go with me to Genesis chapter 22 very quickly. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. 
God speaking to Abram, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the heavens, the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Watch it. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant promised blessing to the Jews, but it also promised blessing to all the nations of the world through the Jews, principally through the, the Messiah who is in his humanity was Jewish, Jesus. Then going over to the New Testament book of Galatians, we see the very same thing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, which reads, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, here it is again, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That the Gentiles will be part of God's salvation plan has always been in the plan, counsel, purpose, heart of God. It's nothing new. So salvation is not a Jewish thing, nor is salvation a Gentile thing. Salvation is a grace thing. <laughs> salvation is a grace thing. And when we accept one another in assembly like this, we imitate Christ in how he accepts both believing Jews and believing Gentiles and believing blank, whatever you want to call yourself. When we do that accepting, it's an outflow of God keeping his promises made first to Israel. And the result is the Gentiles who come into salvation glorify God for his mercy. Very quickly, verses 9 to 12. The Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy. Verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. I will sing to thy name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, that's Messiah, and he who... Uh, arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. <laughs> I think the readers in the Roman epistle, the first readers needed to understand that salvation is an equal opportunity blessing to believing Jews and to believing Gentiles. Therefore, they ought to accept one another, not to racially discriminate against each other. And to review them, we're to imitate Christ by not pleasing ourselves, by Experiencing unity which glorifies God, and third, by accepting one another. So the question I have for me and you is, are we? Are we not pleasing ourselves? Are we experiencing unity with each other to glorify God? And are we accepting each other? That's a personal question with a personal answer and a personal application. Verse 13 is the last verse in our passage, and it tells us what we can expect to experience if we will imitate Christ by not pleasing ourselves, by experiencing unity, which glorifies God, and by accepting one another. Four happy results. Ready? Very quickly. Let me look at the verse first. 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we will imitate Christ, brothers and sisters, by not pleasing ourselves, by experiencing unity which glorifies God, and by accepting one another, then and only then 
we can expect these four happy results. What are they? One, God filling with respect to joy. God filling with respect to joy. That's the first part of verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. You want joy? Who doesn't want joy? Joy is not dependent on happy happenings. Joy is dependent on Jesus. You want to have overfilled joy? Then imitate Christ. But that's not all. If we will imitate Christ, the second wonderful result is a God filling with respect to peace. Not just joy, as great as that is, but also with peace. 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. You're going to get both. If you imitate Christ, you're going to get an overflowing joy and you're going to get an overflowing peace. You're going to be at peace on the inside of you when everybody around you is in turmoil. Where you work, where you live perhaps, where you transact, where you travel this summer, you can have overflowing peace a settled sense in your spirit that all is well despite appearances if you imitate Jesus Christ by not pleasing yourself, by experiencing unity which glorifies God, and by accepting each other, accepting each other. There's two more wonderful results for imitating Christ. They're still in verse 13. The third result is trust in God as your way of life. Trust in God as your way of life. I see it there. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I believe that saying in a life of believing, in a lifestyle of believing, in a habit of believing. If we will imitate Christ in the ways this passage tells us to, we will have a trust, a belief in God as our way of life. Our belief in God will not be the spare tire for our car. Our belief in Christ will be the steering wheel of our car. And fourth, if we will imitate Jesus, not only will we have a God filling with respect to joy, a God filling with respect to peace, a trust in God as our way of life, but fourth and finally, if we will imitate Jesus, we will have overflowing hope, enough hope to share, overflowing hope by the Holy Spirit's power. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This country needs hope. Desperately. And it isn't going to come through the government, no matter who's in government. It isn't going to come through education. It isn't going to come through finance or wealth accumulation. The hope for the Bahamas is Jesus Christ, amen? amen. And you are his representatives. You are his ambassadors. Will you imitate him? Will you refuse to please yourself? Will you work to have a unity with other believers? Will you accept one another? If you will, you can go to the bank in heaven for these things. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we long for that joy. We long for that peace. We long for that way of life, and we long for that hope. 
Thank you for showing us that it's intrinsically wrapped up in choosing to copy Jesus by not pleasing ourselves, by experiencing and working for unity with each other, and by accepting one another without prejudice or prejudgment. Lord, make us to be that kind of an assembly. And for we want you to be glorified in all that we say and don't say, all that we do and refuse to do, all that we think and we do not allow ourselves to think. Be glorified in this assembly. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.